0: Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Barco, the host of New Books in Law. Today we'll be talking to Nicholas R. Perillo about his work, Against the Profit Motive: The Salary Revolution in American Government, 1780 to 1940. Perillo is Professor of Law at Yale University. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much.
0: To start off, could you tell us how American lawmakers made the absence of the profit motive a defining feature of government? Well, in in America today.
1: Uh, when we think of government, uh, we think of public officials and public employees being paid regular salaries. Uh, and we, we distinguish government from business or from the private sector. Uh, I think in part on the ground that in business or in the private sector, you have the profit motive. Uh, you, you, you have people thinking about the bottom line. You have people thinking about maximizing the amount of money uh, they can make from what they're doing. Uh, whereas in government, uh, we have this we have this sense, which is which is largely accurate, uh, that uh, people have kind of a secure existence from their salaries and they're they're not thinking uh, about a bottom line or they're not thinking about, uh, uh, you know, maximizing, uh, you know, the, the revenue of their agency or, or something like that um and indeed a lot of the critiques of governments uh, have to do with this distinction uh, a lot of the arguments for why uh, government might be inefficient or unresponsive uh rest on the idea that there just aren't very strong in- incentives for people in government um uh people in government aren't are uh, aren't as focused on uh on clear goals uh in the way that uh, in the way that uh, people in the private sector are Uh, and what, what my book argues is that this aspect of government, this absence of the profit motive in government, is something relatively recent. Uh, something that basically came into being over about the last 100 or 150 years. Uh, if you look back at American government in the 1700s or the 1800s or often even in the early 1900s, you'll see that lots of government officials uh, make money from their offices in what we might call a profit-seeking manner. Uh, let, let, me, let me give you some examples. Uh, judges would make fees uh, from transactions in the course of cases that came before them. Uh, district attorneys prosecuting crimes would receive a fee for every conviction they won. Uh, tax collectors would get a percentage on their collections. Uh, in, the, uh, in the military context, naval officers would receive a percentage of the value of the ships they captured during wartime uh, or if they sank an enemy ship they would receive a uh, they would receive a a bounty that was calculated according to the number of sailors on board the enemy ship when the battle began uh you also observe this in law enforcement uh for example police officers would be paid uh fees for every arrest they made or they received rewards for recovering stolen property. Uh, and then when when suspects were caught and incarcerated, uh, jailers, uh, and this is uh, this is a bit counterintuitive, uh jailers would receive fees from the prisoners uh if the prisoners wanted better treatment in jail. Uh so for example, um uh if you were a prisoner and and you and you had money you could pay the jailer for a nicer cell or for a uh for for uh, coffee or alcohol uh, during your stay behind bars, um, and and also when the jails grow into the penitentiaries in the nineteenth century, and and get uh, get transformed in that respect, uh, the uh, the wardens of penitentiaries uh, force the inmates to labor, and uh, they sell the products of the inmates' labor and make a profit uh, off of those. Um, you also observe, uh, you also observe these profit-seeking incentives, uh, in various, uh, government services. So, for example, the clerks who would decide immigrants' applications to become citizens would get a fee for every, every time they granted citizenship to somebody. Uh, or the, uh, the government doctors who would decide veterans' applications for disability benefits would receive a fee for every application they got uh or the uh the officers on the frontier who decided settlers applications for homestead land would get a fee every time they granted a homestead. And and I, I should say that that all these these fees to um say homestead officers were important because uh government land is probably the most important uh, uh public benefit in the 19th century. Uh actually my <laughs> my favorite example is that uh is that through the 18th century, at least, uh, diplomats would receive what was called a gift. A gift uh, upon successfully concluding a treaty, and they received this gift from uh, the foreign government with whom they negotiated. And all of this was quite lawful and above board. Uh, so, for example, when when uh, Benjamin Franklin, on behalf of the 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 new rebelling United States, uh, successfully negotiated uh, the alliance. With France in the 1770s, uh, he received a gift from Louis XIV that was worth, uh, 1500 pounds, which is a lot of money at that time. And, and in general, I mean, we might look at all of these profit seeking arrangements, all these ways to, to make money from public office and think, well, this is, this is just corruption. Uh, you, you know, this is just some kind of bribery or extortion, right? Uh, doesn't this fit in with stereotypes that we have about 19th century government about say Boss tweet or something about there just being lots of corruption, uh, but but I would say no no that actually uh, if you look at all these arrangements that I've just talked about they were all completely lawful uh, the the courts were aware of them and uh, and they they recognized uh, these kinds of payments as being legal at common law and furthermore uh, lawmakers in the U.S. Congress and in the state legislatures would often explicitly recognize and authorize these fees, uh, through, through laws that they passed. So this was the lawful and above board way to make money as a government employee, uh, in the 1700s and 1800s and sometimes into the early 1900s. And it was only, uh, it was only when, uh, members of Congress and members of the state legislatures passed new laws, mainly in the in the late 1800s and early 1900s to abolish these arrangements and replace them with fixed salaries that we came to the present-day arrangement that we have whereby uh, government employees just draw a salary and they don't, uh, they don't work on a profit-seeking basis and they don't have sharp monetary incentives. Uh, so the book is really about how this old profit-seeking system worked and how uh, American lawmakers abolished it and replaced it with the uh, the nonprofit government that we've come to take for granted today.
0: What were the two non-salary forms of payment for government officials that initially predominated in the U.S. And in what ways did these two forms of payment tend to give rise to two very different social relationships between officials and the people with whom they dealt?
1: So, in working on this book, I found that there was this bewildering variety of different uh, profit-seeking schemes in different government offices. Uh, and, you know, everything from uh, judges to district attorneys to naval officers to diplomats to homestead officers. And I noticed also, of course, that over time lawmakers abolished all these arrangements and replaced them with fixed salaries. And uh, I, I wanted to try to Uh, make sense of why all these uh, profit-seeking schemes were abolished and replaced by salaries. And I I think the best way to understand why that happened is to group all these many arrangements into two broad categories. Uh, So the first is money that officers received for doing services that people wanted. And the second category is money that officers received for doing services that people did not want. Okay, so in the first category, uh, you'd have, say, uh, uh, customs officers processing merchants' uh, business through the custom house. Uh, You know, the merchants want their business processed. They want to get their goods back so they can take them to market. Uh, Or you'd have... Clerks deciding immigrants' applications to be citizens. So, you know, obviously the the, uh, the 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 immigrants want their applications processed. Uh, or you'd have uh, government doctors deciding veterans' applications for for benefits. Um, you know, and and obviously a lot of these uh, a lot of these services are similar to the things we we see today. You know, if if you're a veteran and you want your benefits, you want them processed fast. If you're going to the DMV to get a driver's license, you 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 don't want to wait online for too long. Um, and, and when these officers were profit seeking and when they received a fee, every time they rendered one of these services, they tended to, they tended to provide service quickly. They tended to provide service in a friendly way. They, uh, they, they kind of advertised their services. They, they wanted people to come to their offices to get their services. And they tended to view, uh, uh, the people seeking their services, whether it was immigrants or or merchants, or disabled veterans, or whoever, they tended to view those people as their customers. Uh, So these fees for service, uh, for services that people wanted, tended to create uh, a customer service mentality in government. And, and, And indeed, 19th century American government was often renowned for its customer service. So one example would be the clerks who decided immigrants' applications to become citizens, uh, if, if you look at, say, New York in the 1840s, uh, you'll see that these clerks uh, were, were really doing their best to attract as many uh, Germans and Irishmen uh, to their offices to become citizens. They would provide very fast service. Uh, you know, the officers were very efficiently run to get people in and out quickly. They, for, for, for the German immigrants, they would, the, the officers would provide translators on their own dime to help the immigrants out with their, with their forms and, and so forth. Also, they would offer discounts, uh, if a lot of immigrants showed up together, uh, which was often the result of them being, uh, uh, be- being brought in by a, by a, a ward healer or something from the party machine. Uh, the officers would offer a volume discount, uh, uh, if, if you showed up with a lot of friends. Um, and, and they would also compete on price. Uh, there were several different, uh, offices in the city, uh, uh, offering to, to decide applications for citizenship. And, uh, and they would, um, uh, they would, they would sort of cut their prices to compete with the, you know, with the office downtown or, or, or whatever it was. And then, and then, of course, also they would, uh, they would, they would compete in terms of the substance of the decisions. Uh, the, the standards in the law, uh, for deciding whether an immigrant, uh, is allowed to become a citizen can be quite vague. Uh, the immigrant is supposed to be, quote, attached to the Constitution. Well, what does that mean? Uh, and, and because the officers had a monetary stake in getting more people naturalized as citizens, they tended to uh, uh, construe that law in a way that was very friendly to, to the immigrants. Um, so so that, that's uh, how the first category of, of profit-seeking incentives work. Now, if we move on to the second category, this is payments that officers received for performing services that people didn't want. Uh, so, for example, district attorneys getting a fee for every suspect they convicted uh tax collectors getting a percentage on the the amount of taxes they collected or on the sum of the forfeitures that they imposed when they caught tax evasion or or that kind of thing. Um, and uh, I, I refer to these payments as bounties, uh, you know, kind of like the officers are 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 bounty hunters. Uh, and and this uh this kind of payment creates quite the opposite social dynamic between the officers uh, and the and the people who are affected uh, rather than uh, promoting customer service and and promoting reciprocity and creating kind of a customer seller bond between the officers and the members of the population, uh, instead, it makes things very adversarial uh, it's uh, it's it's one thing to be uh, to be caught for tax evasion by a disinterested officer on salary, uh, but it's but it's quite another thing to be caught by an officer for tax evasion who has a direct monetary self-interest in catching you um, that really uh, sets up the officer, not as a neutral decision maker, but as kind of, you know, your, your enemy, someone, somebody who's after you for, for, for his own personal gain. Um, so, so I think um, we can understand these two kinds of payments and the distinction between them uh, sociologically, because they create a very different social relationship between uh, government officials and the, and the public at large.
0: In what way did lawmakers sour on the idea that customer service was an appropriate paradigm for governance?
1: Well, this goes to the question of why the fees for service that officers got for giving people services they wanted were ultimately abolished. I mean, you could say it's not such a bad idea. Uh, people are often saying the, the DMV would be run a lot better, uh, if, if the, uh, people who ran it had more of a monetary incentive to get people in and out quickly and to provide friendly service and that kind of thing. And, and indeed, in some of the examples that I gave before, you see that, uh, government officers were, uh, were, were often, uh, quite speedy and, 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 and friendly and, um, and, uh, and, and favoring of claimants uh, in their in the in the way they provided services when they had a monetary stake in providing them. Uh, so so why did this uh, ultimately get abolished? Uh, and I, I think a couple of things happened. So first, uh, as as I mentioned, there was sometimes competition uh, among government service providers so that they compete on price, but there wasn't always. Uh, it sort of depended on the individual public function. And sometimes these officers, uh, didn't have competition or didn't have competition in the area, and so they could exercise monopoly power. Uh, and they could actually price gouge, uh, uh, they could, they could price gouge, uh, members of the population who needed their services. Um, in, in, in addition to that, uh, I, I should, I should, I should emphasize that at least in the 1700s, uh, it, it, it was it was not only possible for officers to take these fees for service, but it was it was moreover possible for them to negotiate the amount of the fee with uh the members of the population who wanted the services. Um th- this is this is because in the seventeen hundreds it was legal at English common law and American common law to tip a public official. Uh, it, you know, today that's illegal. It's, it's illegal under what we call the anti-gratuity laws. Uh, but it, but it was perfectly legal in the, in the 1700s. Uh, and because it was legal to tip, um, that created a space for there to be a kind of bargaining, uh, between laypersons and, uh, and the public officials providing services over what the price, basically, of the, of the government service would be. And, um, uh, and, and, and and this is partly what allowed for the, the price gouging. And, and also, the fact that uh, government officers could negotiate the prices for their services meant that it basically became possible to finance the government simply through fees that came from individuals who were paying for government services. And this uh, clashed with the values of the American Revolution. Um, so, I mean, as you know, one of the big slogans of the American Revolution is uh, no taxation without representation. In other words, uh, uh, the government ought not to be able to finance itself and not, ought not to be able to take money from the public and it ought not to be able to run uh, unless the elected members of the legislature uh, approve of taxes to finance the government. Uh, but but you see how, if the officers can just negotiate prices for individual services with the individual members of the public who are seeking the services they they can just kind of run their offices without any tax money and therefore without the consent of the legislature uh and and so uh a, a, a sort of as a sub theme of the revolutionary slogan, no taxation without representation, a lot of the revolutionaries started saying no, no uh no fees without representation. Um, and, and so the, the idea was not at first to abolish fees altogether. They, they thought fees were good for customer service, but it was just to ensure that whenever a public official did charge a fee, uh, he could only charge a fee that the legislature had recognized and authorized and fixed through uh, an act that it had passed. Uh, so so the idea after the revolution was, yeah, we'll have these fees for service, but they'll all be regulated uh, by by acts of the legislature. And this will also solve the price gouging problem. It'll also be a way of, like, regulating these monopolistic officers, sort of like antitrust law would later do. Um, so, So in the generation after the revolution, you have all the state legislatures and Congress pass these acts that say okay, you know, this officer can only charge uh, $2 for this service and $3 for that service, etc. Uh, and, and so there was this new expectation that all the fees would always be regulated. But this proved to be an enormous practical problem. Uh, if you think about any job you've had, uh, imagine uh, that you had to make a list of every task that you did in that job, and then you had to think, okay, for each task, how difficult is this? How much time does it take up? How important is the task? And then you had to attach an exact price to every task. That's really complicated. Uh, and it proved to be extremely uh, challenging for the legislatures to write up these long lists of all the services that government officials would provide and what the prices for all those services would be. Uh, and, and, and it turned out to be, um, in, in a lot of cases, an enormous uh, headache and a, and a real practical disaster uh, because, you know, you, you, you'd you have the legislature set a price that wasn't quite right, so officers would provide a lot of one service but none of another service, or more often, uh, the, the, the officers and the people seeking their services would recognize that this list of prices made no sense, and they would just keep negotiating their own prices as they had back in the 1700s. Uh, but, but now under these new circumstances where the legislature is supposed to control everything, that becomes corruption. Okay, that gets redefined, that kind of negotiation and bargaining gets redefined as corruption. Uh, and legislatures in the course of the 1800s increasingly have the sense that as long as we allow officers to take fees for service, and, and as long as we try to put prices on them, they're always going to depart from these prices because it's too difficult to figure out what all the services are and what the prices should be. So it would be easier if we just banned fees for service altogether and just paid the officers fixed salaries. So so basically, the story is something that starts out with political values. It starts out with wanting to protect people against monopoly and uh, ensuring that the legislature uh, controls everything and there's no taxation and no fees without representation and then it ends in this very practical problem that they just can't figure out how to regulate the prices in the right way so that's that's one big reason that um that lawmakers sour on the idea of customer service i think an additional reason is that i, I, I mean as you as you can tell from the examples i've given so far uh the government officers who got fees for service had a real incentive to be friendly to the people seeking their services uh the the clerks deciding uh, immigrants applications for citizenship were very friendly to the irish and and the germans and 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 the people uh seeking to become citizens and that kind of arrangement that 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 kind of scheme where the government officials are very friendly to the claimant class I think is only sustainable politically uh, if the claimant class is the overwhelmingly dominant interest group in the legislature, uh, and and I would argue that for a lot of these areas where officers made fees for service in the 1800s, that was the case politically. Uh, so, for for example, uh, if you look at immigration in in the 19th century. Um, the, the 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 nativist movement during that time is relatively limited i uh, the, the, the that is the anti-immigration movement it was very successful in preventing immigration from asia uh say in the chinese exclusion act of the 1880s uh but in terms of preventing the the masses of immigration from europe during the 1800s uh, the anti-immigration movement wasn't very successful at all, and it just wasn't very big. There, there was the Know-Nothing Movement in the 1850s, but that fizzled without having much effect on policy. And therefore, I mean, in terms of uh, flows of people from Europe to America, the 19th century really is the great age of immigration. Uh, and the European uh, immigrants themselves and the businesses in America that wanted to employ them are this, uh, overwhelmingly dominant interest in, in Congress. Um, and, uh, and, and you see that reflected in these monetary schemes for granting citizenship that are very friendly to immigrants. Uh, and it's only in the early 1900s that the tide turns and you have, a, a, a really broad, successful anti-immigration nativist movement, uh, that wants to, wants to, um, uh, close the doors of citizenship and ultimately close the doors of immigration. Uh, and it's in 1906 that Congress, under pressure from this new movement, uh, passes what's called the Naturalization Act, which, um, uh, sets, um, uh, basically sets higher and more difficult standards for immigrants to become American citizens. Uh, it, um, imposes all kinds of new record-keeping requirements so they can Uh, catch people who haven't, uh, who haven't fulfilled all the criteria. And it also creates, uh, this new core of what were called the naturalization agents, who are these salaried officers who basically decide now whether, uh, incoming, uh, Italians and Poles and, and, and Eastern Europeans can become citizens or not. And these people, uh, don't make fees for service. They don't have any monetary incentive to, to be friendly to the immigrants, and and lo and behold, they are much less friendly. Uh, and it, and I, it's in, interestingly, it, it's uh, it's much less likely for a new immigrant to become a citizen, or at least to become a citizen quickly, in 1910 or 1920, than it was back in back in the 1800s. So this um, this uh, severing of the bond of reciprocity uh, and this um, uh, this sort of alienation of Government officials from the people who they once served is, uh, is, is something that um, that comes with the rise of salaries and is basically a result of new interest groups like the nativist movement becoming strong and pushing back against the old interest groups. Uh, and, and basically what I'd argue is that as American politics became more complicated, as you had more and more rival interest groups forming and entering the legislative arena, uh, it becomes much harder for one claimant class uh, to to say, "Well, we're the dominant dominant interest, and we want this kind of administration that's very friendly to us with these, you know, kind of one directional monetary incentives." Uh, and basically, the the modern political world is so complicated, and there's so many interest groups uh, 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 having rivalries with one another uh, that it's difficult to say that the officialdom is going to be dedicated to one particular group, and that's one reason that we have salaries, because then they don't have an incentive to serve one particular group.
0: How was the clash between bounties and the modern state not intuitive or obvious?
1: Sure. So so now I'll go on to talk about the other kind of uh, the, the other kind of payment to public officials, uh, which is payments to public officials for doing things that people don't want, uh, what I call bounties. Uh, such as payments to prosecutors for convicting suspects or payments to tax collectors for uh, for 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 a, a percentage on their collections or something like that um, I, I think people may look at these kinds of payments initially and think well this kind of stuff is just barbaric uh, this kind of stuff is like roman tax farming it's it's like stuff that you'd expect from two thousand years ago and we'd expect these kinds of payments to fade away just with the rise of civilization uh you know in the same way that uh, uh piracy or sanguinary punishments uh fade away but i would argue that uh that, that that's not true um rather these kinds of bounty payments looked for a while in the 1800s like really cutting edge instruments of the modern state um Basically, the thing about the modern state is that it is more likely than, uh, than governments of the medieval period or the early modern period to make demands on the population that go against the predominant preferences in local communities. Uh, so so so, for example, um uh uh customs duties in the early United States were relatively low. And therefore it was possible for the federal government to get into kind of a kind of a get-along-go-along situation with the merchants in the ports who had to pay these duties. Because the you know the, the the taxes weren't very high and uh you know they'd always appoint uh uh you know one of the merchants to be the tax collector uh and you know, it, it wasn't that big, a, big of a deal. And so there was a kind of equilibrium between the, between the government and the, and the people that it was ostensibly imposing on. Um, but then in the course of the 1800s, you have Congress greatly increase uh, the tariff, greatly increase customs duties, especially to pay for the Civil War uh, and then also to maintain a, a protectionist, a really aggressive protectionist trade policy after the Civil War. And so then you have these really high uh, taxes, and you know there are major incentives for the uh, for the merchants to avoid them, uh, and so you have a much more uh, adversarial relationship between the federal government on the one hand, and uh, and the communities of merchants in the ports uh, on on the other hand. Uh, so you have higher taxes, you have more complicated taxes. Uh, and then you have a lot of new forms of regulation, regulation of business, and also more aggressive regulation of of uh, what was once called vice, uh, uh, more extensive regulation of liquor, more extensive regulation of gambling those those things had always been regulated going back for you know hundreds of years into the middle ages. But in the nineteenth century, you have these new social movements of people who think that gambling and drinking are really evil and need to be stamped out altogether. Uh, and you you have these newly ambitious uh what you might call big government initiatives uh say to completely ban uh alcoholic beverages which is something that no Anglo-American government had tried to do uh before the 1800s but people did try to do it with the the emergence of these of these new uh of these new and aggressive social movements um, so basically you have all these new situations in which government is making demands uh, on the on the citizenry that don't just impose on, on individual people, but they kind of um, they 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 deny and they denigrate the values of entire communities. You, you know, there were there were entire uh, you know neighborhoods or towns where there were expectations that taxes would be kept down to a certain level, or that you know liquor would be tolerated or gambling would be tolerated. Uh, and now you know you have um, you know you have a relatively distant government in the form of a, a state legislature, vis-a-vis a neighborhood or a town, or, or even you know the U.S. Congress, which is very distant, uh, imposing these new taxes, imposing these new regulations, uh, and it can be very difficult to enforce these things because if a lot of people in a neighborhood or a, or a town or whatever or a or some rural community are against a new regulation or a new tax and you're supposed to be uh the officer uh you know from the from the state government at large or from the federal government who's going to come in and enforce this uh that can be a very awkward and even dangerous thing to do uh you know you, you may find that nobody in the community will cooperate you excuse me will cooperate with you uh you know people in the community may uh you know, maybe planning retribution against you, uh, you know, it can be a very difficult thing to do. So you need to, uh, make the officers brave <laughs> in order to do this. Uh, you need to really motivate them. And, uh, a, a, a way that, uh, 19th century state legislatures and the U.S. Congress would often motivate these officers is just to pay them more the more they enforce. Uh, and you, you observe this in the, in the fees, for example, that state legislatures would offer to district attorneys for winning convictions. Uh, You know, when it started out, it was just, you know, $5 for a misdemeanor conviction, uh, $10 for a felony conviction, $15 for a capital conviction. But then as they pass more and more of, say, these anti-vice laws, uh, you know, that are really difficult to enforce because they're against activities that are locally popular, they start offering really high fees uh, to to enforce these unpopular laws, so they'll offer you know thirty or fifty dollars for a gambling conviction, or thirty or fifty dollars for a liquor conviction, or something like that, and the the amount of money is pegged to the local unpopularity of the law, and if enforcing locally unpopular laws in some deep way is what the modern state is all about. Uh, then you can see how bounties are actually quite attractive, and I would actually argue that these kinds of payments became more common than ever before in the 1800s, contrary to the idea that they're uh, a barbaric relic. Uh, they seemed for a while to be cutting edge.
0: How did bounty seeking render it difficult for enforcers to make subjective judgments in a sound way?
1: So this goes to what the ultimate problem was with these bounty incentives. So they seem like a good idea for enforcing, uh, for, for enforcing locally unpopular laws, or for enforcing uh, kind of novel and alien laws. Uh, so what ultimately turns out to be wrong with them? And and basically, I'd say that uh, modern law and modern regulation involves such broad liability it makes so many things illegal it makes so many things into offenses or crimes and it's also so complicated uh, you know think of the modern income tax code or something like that that basically it cannot be enforced to the letter uh if, if you if you were trying if you were to try to enforce uh a lot of modern uh uh uh, uh, regulatory and, and tax and and uh, and vice schemes absolutely to the letter. If you were to try to um, you know uh, you know jail everyone who you know has you know the the most uh, you know slight possession of marijuana or everybody who uh, makes any kind of mistake on their income tax or something like that, uh, it would it would be uh, extremely wasteful of resources, and it would also be completely unbearable for the population, and, and would cause you know kind of massive alienation uh between uh between governments and and the citizenry. Uh and, and indeed you 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 see uh you know you see some of this alienation in um in the in in the present day in uh you know very uh 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 in in very uh, uh strict enforcement of relatively minor laws uh, in a lot of uh, in a lot of urban communities. Um and and so you can imagine that if if officials Say in the law enforcement or tax areas are paid, uh, you know, a fee every time they enforce the law against somebody. Well, they are going to enforce the law to the letter. Uh, and you're going to get, um, you're going to get an, an even more aggra- aggravated form of the really, uh, aggressive and, and literal and strict and nitpicky enforcement of law, uh, than you, than you even observe in some areas today. Um, so, so for example, uh, in the, in the tax field, uh, y- y- you have these bounty-seeking, uh, federal customs officers finding every mistake they could find that a merchant might make, uh, in paying his taxes, uh, and construing those mistakes to be intentional frauds because the officers had a monetary incentive to find everything to be fraud, and then really putting the screws to the merchants in terms of, you know, threatening them and getting them to, uh, you, you know, to, to, um, uh, to, to admit guilt even, even where there really was none. Um, and, you know, this, uh, this, this, this proved to be, um, uh, not a, not a, uh, not, not a very effective law enforcement strategy because they, they really weren't going after the, the, the big fish. They were just going after the, the kinds of violations that were easiest, uh, to find. Um, and, and also it was causing r- really tremendous, uh, resentment and alienation among, uh, among the taxpayers. Uh, and, and and the thing is, um, you know, and this is this is something that's been pointed out by a lot of social scientists. Usually no government has enough enforcers and enough uh, detection power to actually enforce the law in a way that relies entirely on uh, coercion and deterrence. Uh, you, you need coercion and deterrence to go after, you know, the, the few bad apples. But for the most part, compliance with law depends on uh, essentially a broad sense among the citizenry that the law is legitimate uh, and ought to be obeyed, uh, you know, in a kind of sense of equilibrium between the population and the government. And when you uh, when you pay officers by the amount that they enforce the law and cause them to engage in this you know, really aggressive nitpicky enforcement, uh that that can undermine uh the public's uh faith in the government. It can create a lot of resentment, it can make people think that uh you know o- obedience to law is a sucker's game and, and that this is all a game of cat and mouse between between the government and the public. And uh and, and it can cause people to evade the law more. Uh, there's a lot of interesting um, uh social psychology uh, literature on this today. And, and basically what I, what I observed in the historical sources in the 1800s is that as lawmakers rely more and more on these bounties because they think that they're cutting edge and they think that they're a way of, of enforcing, uh, these locally unpopular modern laws, they, they find that actually they have this perverse effect. They, they alienate the population so much, uh, that they cause widespread resentment and they, they threaten to cause just kind of norms of compliance with law to unravel um, there's a uh, there there was one um uh one instance in congress where there were these debates on uh on whether federal marshals and federal prosecutors should get fees for arresting and convicting people under uh these very strict federal uh liquor tax laws and uh there's one uh congressman from Kentucky who who gets up and says look, there's a lot of casual, sell, small-time selling of liquor that goes on. And, you know, you know, we need to go after the big fish. We need to go after the biggest violators. But, you know, the the, the idea of having officers uh, with an incentive to go after every little violation uh, is just intolerable. And then he, he mentions that in the U.S. Capitol building, where the House and the Senate meet, uh you could go down to the Capitol restaurant and if you wanted you could get a uh 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 uh, uh you could get a serving of whiskey and a teacup um even though that was illegal in the District of Columbia uh at that uh at that at that time. Uh and then he said, what would you think if the US Marshals came in and raided on us, you know, so it, it, it's this sense that you know there's gonna be a kind of low level of noncompliance with law at all times, uh you know, and people have to be given some latitude for that uh and therefore we ought not to have these these bounty incentives.
0: Could you discuss the way two Weberian themes, salary and legitimacy, are profoundly connected in a way that Weber did not discuss?
1: So as I said, um I, I think that bounty incentives for officers can uh basically undermine the legitimacy of the law uh by by alienating the population. And uh and legitimacy is is a theme that uh, a lot of social scientists have talked about and it's um you know it goes back to max weber uh the the great uh sociologist um who you know who emphasized that usually governments cannot rule by coercion alone uh they they have to um uh they they have to uh, uh create some sense in the population that they they deserve compliance or they deserve obedience. And so my view is that by switching officers from bounties to salaries, lawmakers tried to uh, prevent a threat to the legitimacy of the modern state by making officers seem to be uh, uh, disinterested and not adversarial toward the population um and uh, in 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 emphasizing this this weber type theme of legitimacy uh i'm i'm trying to connect it with salaries and of course weber is also known for emphasizing the rise of salaries in modern government uh you know the idea of a transition from from fees or or other kinds of payments towards salaries is something that comes up in a lot of the in a lot of weber's work on on the emergence of bureaucracy uh but but weber didn't Connect the rise of the salary to legitimacy uh, uh, per se. Uh, he viewed it more as um, uh, an aspect of the rise of bureaucracy. Generally, he thought that the salary was sort of technically necessary to bureaucracy because in a bureaucracy you have uh, you know you have a hierarchy. You know the people at the low level make less, and the people at the high level make more. And therefore, you got to have fixed compensation um, to ensure that every officer makes uh, a sum of money. Uh, commensurate with their, uh, with their, their level in the bureaucracy. But, but I actually think the salary goes to Weber's theme of legitimacy in a very direct way. And so that's a connection I'm trying to draw.
0: Why was the flight to salaries an admission of law's weakness and failure?
1: Well, I think in the story about, uh, the downfall of fees for service and in the story about the downfall of bounties, in, in both situations, uh, a, a theme is the inadequacy of law or the limits of law. So, as I said, when lawmakers abolished fees for service, they were doing that because they, they wanted to regulate the fees that officers were paid, uh, but they found that they couldn't write a law that would capture and list all of the services and assign uh, an appropriate price for each service. So ultimately they just threw up their hands and said, uh, it, it, we're going to adopt the, the more crude solution of just giving the officer a fixed salary and not trying to price every single service. Cause that's just a recipe for perverse incentives and corruption. Um, and then in terms of the second story about bounties, uh, you know, the bounty gives an officer an incentive to enforce the law to the letter, to go after every, uh, every little nitpicky violation that he can find. And the thing is, modern law creates such broad liability and it's so complicated that you, you, you have to kind of hang back from enforcing it to the letter. You have to give people some breathing room or some latitude. There has to be some discretion in the system. Uh, and, and so, uh, so basically, um, Uh, by switching to salaries and saying we want officers to just hang back sometimes and not, not enforce the law to the letter because we realize the law is too complicated and it's too broad. That too is an admission, uh, of the, of the failure of being able to write laws perfectly and you just kind of have to, uh, have to let the officers use their own judgment on the ground as to who's a really serious violator and who's not.
0: How did the honorary ideal exert a kind of gravitational pull on the debate over how best to structure compensation.
1: So this question goes to, uh, I, I guess, what, if anything, uh, the founders of the republic had to do with the rise of salaries or, you know, the people who are sometimes called the founding fathers, you know, what did the, uh, what did, what did the Washingtons and the Jeffersons and the Ben Franklins of the world have to do with, with this transition? And the the thing is, the, the ideal of the revolutionary generation, uh, I mean, I said earlier it has to do with no, no taxation without representation, no fees without representation, um, and, and then also uh, preventing price gouging from monopoly. Uh, but in their heart of hearts, what the revolutionary generation really wanted uh was for officers to do their jobs for no pay at all, okay? That was uh, kind of the utopian ideal that uh, that people like Ben Franklin believed in, and indeed, at the constitutional convention, uh, Franklin um, proposed that the Constitution should have a provision in it saying that no federal officer would ever take any money for Doing his office, whether it was fees or bounties or salaries or anything else um, and and basically, I mean the ideal that the that the founders had in mind was that they wanted government officers to be totally disinterested uh, they they didn't want people to go into government for money at all uh, because money is this inherently suspect motivation, and they wanted for there to be this class of kind of gentleman farmers who would fill all the offices in the government out of uh, kind of a sense of social obligation or a sense of virtue uh, and, and, and not be motivated by money. Uh, and, and this was completely impractical and utopian. I mean, even in England, where you had more landed gentlemen than you had in America, there were still plenty of offices that paid money and in which the officers expected to be paid and that was even more true in america where you didn't have as much of a as much of a landed gentry so this was never going to work uh and, and in fact on the, on the ground in a more in a more rough and tumble less idealistic way uh you know as i've said a lot of people thought it was a good idea for officers to have incentives for customer service or to enforce unpopular laws or that kind of thing um, but at the same time, I I do think that this this admittedly utopian and unreachable ideal of having government officers not motivated by money in any way did, in kind of a background way, shape historical developments. I think that it um, I think that it was yet another reason for why American lawmakers wanted fees to be regulated. Uh, y- you know, which which also went along with the the aversion to price gouging. And furthermore, I mean, another reason why lawmakers ultimately converted officials to salaries is that sometimes, especially in a lot of the big and growing cities of the 19th century, um, uh, an officer would have a fee, maybe that was fixed by a statute for a service, you know, $2 for every processing of a permit application or something. But as the population grew this officer would start to just get a lot more applications, especially in an urban area, and just make a lot of money. Uh, and, and sometimes the, the total sums made by these officers are, are quite extraordinary. I mean, around the turn of the 20th century, um, Al Smith, who was a political boss in New York, he uh, he held the sheriff's office in New York, and he was making about $70,000 a year, which is a huge sum uh, uh, 120 uh, uh, years ago. And so to some degree, the motivation for converting officers to salaries was simply to prevent them from making too much money, uh, you know, and, and and the idea is we're going to put this officer on salary just so we can be sure that the total sum of his compensation never rises too high again. And I think that that populist impulse against officers making too much money is a kind of intellectual descendant of this old revolutionary idea from Ben Franklin and other people that officers ideally shouldn't make any money at all. Um, It's utopian, it's unreachable, but it still shapes uh, some of how we try to structure our actual government.
0: Now, would you say a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became attracted to studying legal history?
1: Uh, So, I, I mean, I teach in a law school, and I teach a subject called administrative law, uh, which is uh, uh, basically an introduction for lawyers to how American government bureaucracy works, and uh, and it's mainly aimed at uh, helping lawyers think about how they could get something out of the government that they wanted for their client. Uh so if you have a client who uh was denied social security benefits, uh how can you uh, sue the government to try to get the benefits? Or if you have a client that's a regulated business and uh government agency hands down a regulation that hurts your client's profits, uh how can you um, how can you sue the government to uh to 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 uh try to make them get rid of the regulation? So I've always been uh interested in um What motivates, uh, government bureaucrats, uh, what shapes their behavior, um, and, uh, there are of course numerous ways of doing that beyond lawsuits, and I think a lot of it has to do with what you might call the internal incentives of the bureaucracy. What are people's, uh, what are people's views of what is or isn't professional conduct, uh, what are people's uh, predictions about what kind of behavior will get them promoted, um as I've said, these days the monetary incentives in government are relatively soft, but um you know this was another aspect of how to motivate people in government that I, I think you know historically was tried and tends not to be tried anymore today, but uh but that's worth exploring for getting a kind of a complete picture of of uh how how government officials can be motivated. And
0: would you please tell us how you came to write your current work?
1: Well, uh, about 10 years ago, I was interested in privatization. Uh, y- y- you may recall the, uh, the, the George W. Bush administration uh, really pushed a lot of initiatives for privatization of public services and, and uh, outsourcing to the private sector and that kind of thing, sometimes under the rhetoric of, um, uh, of trying to inject an entrepreneurial spirit uh, into the provision of public services and uh th- this uh a- 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 as you know resulted in some uh some pretty uh spectacular uh things uh, sometimes that were embarrassing to the US government uh p- perhaps most saliently the use of private security firms uh during the conflict in Iraq uh the um uh the US diplomats in Iraq were guarded not by the U.S. military, but uh, rather by a private security company called Blackwater, uh, that in many ways, uh, was a kind of private uh, military force. Uh, and, uh, during the, the conflict in Iraq about ten years ago, I mean, just observing it, I became, uh, in- intrigued by, uh, by the use of these private security companies and also by the, um, by the uh the the shock and uh and uh the sense of being disturbed that that uh, Americans uh, exhibited when they when they saw uh how much uh how much military violence was being done in their name by private profit seeking firms and so i began to ask myself well you know where does this um where does this sense of shock or this sense of a norm being violated come from uh, why do Americans today uh, sort of intuitively or almost viscerally think that governments uh, ought not to be mixed with the profit motive? And I I was uh, vaguely aware that there had once been this phenomenon in the U.S. Uh, called privateering, uh, which was this scheme by which uh, 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 private ships could get licenses during a war To go on the high seas and, uh, capture, uh, enemy ships from the other side and sell them and get a percentage on the proceeds. And this was a kind of for-profit war. And indeed, the U.S. Constitution explicitly authorizes Congress to license privateers. Um, and so I was, I thought, well, you know, maybe I can get some purchase on the, on the history of this this norm of nonprofit government by looking at the privateers and, and looking at how they ultimately fell into disuse. And so I, you know, I began researching the War of 1812 and that kind of thing, which is where the privateers were probably most important in, the, in American military history. And I wanted to compare them to the U.S. Navy, which I naturally assumed would have been not-for-profit, and uh, lo and behold, when I uh, looked into the history of the Navy, I found that, in fact, uh, U.S. naval officers, even in the public Navy that operated alongside the privateers, would receive percentages on the value of the ships they captured. Uh, the highest earner, as it were, during the War of 1812 was uh, uh, Captain Stephen Decatur, who made about $30,000 uh, during the war at a time when a captain's salary was only about $1,500. So he really got rich from the war. Uh, and, and from there it was really down the rabbit hole. I mean, I, uh, I, I began, uh, gathering as much information as I could about similar, uh, profit-seeking schemes within the government, uh, during the early American Republic and, uh, and, and and realized it was a broader phenomenon. And although there had been writing on it uh, in in a few isolated areas, uh, uh, it really deserved a more comprehensive treatment.
0: To conclude, I'd love to know what you're working on now.
1: As I said before, I'm very interested in what motivates government bureaucrats, government officials, um, uh, what shapes their behavior, uh, and um, and how uh, people. Uh, just who are members of the public at large can get government officials to do things. And also how, uh, you know, how the, the purported masters of the bureaucrats in the legislature can get them to do things. Um, and obviously I've written about that in terms of monetary incentives, but, but now I'm working on it in another context, which is, uh, court orders. Uh, this is more of a present day project. Um, uh, it's in my, uh, my My field of administrative law and uh, and basically i'm I'm writing about uh, instances where federal agencies, uh, such as the Environmental Protection Agency or the Department of the Interior, uh, are ordered by a court to do something. Uh, usually it's to hand out a certain kind of regulation uh, as mandated by an act of Congress, uh, but the agency sometimes for quite good reason, doesn't want to do what the court is ordering it to do. Uh, maybe the agency doesn't have the resources for it, uh, or maybe uh, maybe the agency has too many other competing priorities, too many other things that it needs to do with its limited money and limited staff, uh, or maybe the agency just has a political aversion to doing what it's been ordered to do. Uh, in situations like that, uh, the agency will often go to the judge and say, judge, we understand that you've ordered us to do this, but we, um, you know, we have such limited resources. We have competing priorities. Uh, could you please give us more time? We can't do it right now. Uh, you gave us 12 months. Could you give us another 12 months, please? And often the judge will say, okay. Uh, and so quite often uh, you'll have these court orders that are handed down and Several years later, the agency still will not have complied with the court order. (laughs) And the plaintiffs may be complaining and, and so forth, but, uh, but still nothing has happened. Uh, and so my question is, what, if anything, could a judge really do to a bureaucratic agency to make it comply? Uh, and if it were a private corporation that was the defendant or a private individual, uh, the solution is quite obvious. The judge would hold the defendant in contempt. Uh, and would, uh, jail the individual defendant or jail the officers of the corporation until they complied or, or, or would impose, uh, coercive fines on them, you know, fine them, you know, uh, ten thousand dollars a day or a million dollars a day until they comply or something like that. What's interesting is that these kinds of contempt sanctions are virtually never, uh, uh, leveled against government agencies. Uh, that's, uh, perhaps partly for legal reasons. There may actually be legal obstacles to, to, to ever, uh, forcing a government agency to pay fines. So there's an interesting question of where the money would come from and where it would go to. Isn't it in all the government's money anyway? Uh, and, and, there are also major prudential obstacles. Uh, there are major practical reasons for why a judge would never want to jail a high federal official because it would have all kinds of disruptive effects on uh, other parts of the government's business that have nothing to do with the individual case that the judge is hearing. Uh, and so what will often happen is that the judge will hold the agency in contempt, but with no sanctions attached. The judge just says, you're you're in contempt. And then instead of saying, you're going to jail, or you're going to be fine, the judge says, and you better now comply. Uh, and, and so my question is, what's really going on there? Uh, it, it seems to be perhaps a kind of public shaming. Uh, or, or, or uh, an effort to get the attention of the press or the attention of Congress in uh, hopes that that uh, that the press or Congress would hold the agency accountable, um, or, or perhaps it's ineffective, or at least in some instances ineffective. Which, of course, goes to larger questions about the efficacy of the law in in making bureaucracies do things. Uh, so, at this point, I have more questions than answers on that project, but um, but I'm working.
0: Professor Perillo, that sounds like a fascinating project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you so much.